Saturday morning, ladies, you're in your house knocking yourself out to clean that beautiful white couch. You've spent a couple hours on it. You've got it looking like new. All the spots are out of it. Your husband, during the same time period, is out in the garage changing the oil on the car. He's in his grubbies, and he comes into the living room, and he's so glad you're cleaning that couch, and he plops down with his greasy clothes right on the couch. Question, does the couch clean his dirty clothes, or does his dirty clothes make the couch dirty? Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've been studying the book of Haggai, and in the second shortest book of the Bible, we've seen that the book is actually comprised of four messages. We've looked at the first two, at priorities and discouragement, and today Haggai addresses a problem of relationship the fact that God will only work through the life of a holy person. Why does it seem sometimes that the Lord is not working in the lives of some of His children, that He's not using them to do His work? Well, in some cases, it's because of unconfessed sin in the lives of these people. The God of the universe is a holy God. And as Dr. Berge shares in his message today, it's God's nature to only use holy people for His work. Agai is sometimes called the prophet of common sense, and nowhere more is that evident than in our text this morning. We're going to try to finish the book today, and you may be asking, well, Pastor, how is it that it took you three months to finish the book of Jude and just three weeks this book? Well, this is narrative literature, and it's made to be preached as a whole and to understand it properly. So let's begin reading on his third sermon, Haggai chapter 2 and verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked wine or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become unholy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it will become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, From that time, when one came to a grain heap of twenty measures, there would be only ten. And when when one came to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there would only be twenty. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider, from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider... Is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, 
And I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, briefly, we're not going to review the whole context, but I want to remind you that Haggai is a post-exilic prophet. That means he preached after the children of Israel were taken away for 70 years to a place called Babylon. And then when they were overtaken by the Persians, by Cyrus, they were released and allowed to return back into the land. There were three prophets who preached. They come at the end of the Old Testament after the children were back in the land. Haggai and Zechariah, who were buddies, they were friends, they were fellow preachers, they knew each other, and Malachi, who came a little bit after that. Those are the three post-exilic prophets. When the people came back from Babylon, they came back at three separate returns. Haggai came back under the first return that was led by Zerubbabel. A later return was done by Ezra and then Nehemiah. The people got back into the land under Zerubbabel the first time. They're very excited to be back in God's land, the holy land, God's holy city. They clear away the debris from the destroyed temple that the, that the Babylonians had ruined. They set up an altar to the Lord. They lay the foundation for the temple. But then through discouragement and misplaced priorities, all work stops within two years. So 16 years they had been in the city of Jerusalem, and the temple of the Lord is still not finished. And so God raises up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to speak to the people to get them back on track. Haggai, this little book, you could almost miss it if the pages stuck together in your Bible, gives us four sermons, four fiery sermons that are designed to stir the people to get back and to build the temple of the Lord and to motivate them to a life of holiness and faithfulness. We saw in chapter 1, his first sermon, it dealt with the problem of priorities. And it was designed to arouse the people to go to work and build the temple. Last week, we saw chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, his second sermon. And he deals with the problem of discouragement. And it's designed to assure the people that God is with them as they obey that the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heavens, the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of history, who controls everything, is with them and is going to undergird His work. Now we come to the third sermon, here in verses 10 through 19. And this sermon deals with the problem of relationship. And the purpose of it is to affirm God's people that God will only use a clean instrument that God will only work through in terms of His service in the life of a holy person. Maybe you're here this morning. You're saying, God, I want you to use me. God, I, I want you to use me to have an impact for Jesus Christ. And God's answer is very simple, not only from this passage, but throughout His Word. If you are a holy person, if you are willing to get serious about living a holy life before the Lord, God will use you. Notice verse 10, how he begins this sermon. Chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, 
the word of the Lord came to Haggai. Now, right in your margin, if you will, we've dated each of these sermons with our calendar. December 24th, 520 B.C. December 24th, 520 B.C. Now, if you've noticed from last week, next to chapter 2 and verse 1, when he started his second sermon, it was October 21st, 520 B.C. So about two months and three days have gone by. That's significant because if you flip the page over one, you come to Zechariah the prophet, and notice the first verse in that book. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet. And so here, Zechariah is preaching between the second and third sermon of Haggai the prophet. Now notice verse 11 here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priests for a ruling. So God goes to Haggai. He says, Haggai, I want you to go to the priests. Those were the representatives who in essence taught the law of God. And I want you to go and ask them a question on an official matter. Not that God needed the answer. He wrote it. But he asked Haggai to ask these men so that they could see a critical spiritual truth as the people who taught the people, the rest of Israel, the law of God. And so here's the Lord God. He's the seminary professor. He's hired a proctor, Haggai, to go in and to give the priests a test. There's two questions on God's exam concerning the law. Question number one, verse 12. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? Answer, no, it won't. They correctly passed the first question on the exam. The priest answered and said, no. Why? Because holiness is not communicable. Holiness is not transferable. It's always an individual matter. Now, we get into a book like Leviticus, and we hit the pots and pans section of it, and we usually get discouraged, and we stop reading it. But Leviticus pictures so many spiritual truths that were going to be fulfilled under the new covenant that you and I know as God's people. And in the Old Testament, and especially in the book of Leviticus where they get the answer to this issue, the ceremonial law pictured a basic spiritual truth that was not true just for them, but it's true for us as well. And that is holiness is not something that you just get from another person. Someone asked me some time ago, do you know so-and-so? And I said, yes, I do. He's a good friend. They said, do you know his wife? I said, yes, I do. What a disappointment. See, I wonder how many women there are who are married to a man of God who think that that stuff just rubs off. I wonder how many women there are who are, are married to or how many men are married to some woman who is a, a holy woman, who has a deep relationship with Jesus Christ and a knowledge of the Scripture, and they depend on her for their own Christian life. I wonder how many kids have grown up in homes whose moms are, and dads are deeply committed to Jesus Christ, and somehow they think that that makes them right, that that makes them holy with the Lord. And the answer by Haggai the prophet, and it's the answer given throughout Scripture, is that holiness is not something that's transferable. 
Now, to have a model of holiness in your home, to have a friend that is a model of holiness, is a great privilege, and God will hold you accountable for that. For to whom much is given, much is expected. But while that person's life may serve as an encouragement to you to live a holy, sanctified, consecrated life before God, you personally have to respond. You have to take the steps by which you personally will become holy. My kids are not holy if I live a holy life. I may serve as an encouragement to them, but they personally have to take the steps to walk holy before the Lord. Now we come to the second question here at God's seminary. Notice verse 13. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered and said, It will become unclean. The answer is yes. Because unholiness is contagious. Unholiness can contaminate. Unholiness is transferable. In this Old Testament truth where a man could become contaminated by touching a dead body illustrated in God's economy a basic spiritual truth that your life can be contaminated by another person's life who is unholy. Saturday morning, ladies, you're in your house knocking yourself out to clean that beautiful white couch. You've spent a couple hours on it. You've got it looking like new. All the spots are out of it. Your husband, during the same time period, is out in the garage changing the oil on the car. He's in his grubbies, and he comes into the living room, and he's so glad you're cleaning that couch, and he plops down with his greasy clothes right on the couch. Question, does the couch clean his dirty clothes or does his dirty clothes make the couch dirty? Do you need five minutes to answer that one? <laughs> That's the argument of the passage. You know, I've led college students to Christ who have lived some of the most trashed up lives you could possibly imagine a kid could ever live. And when they receive Christ as their Savior, sometimes they just think that automatically everything's going to change. They think they're going to lose all those bad habits, all those terrible thoughts, all those ungodly attitudes, and it doesn't work that way. I was working with a, a student. He was a senior at Duke University. And for three years, he had been in a club with a group of men. It wasn't an advertised club. It was called the Pornography Club. These were students who met weekly to fill their minds with that trash. And he said to me, Carl, I am so grateful that I've come to know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. But it just tears me up. He said, here I am in the midst of prayer, speaking to the Lord, and what comes to my mind but those filthy images that I'd put in my mind. Listen, when you come to Christ, God may do some very dramatic things in your life. He may do some things to encourage you to, to show that His supernatural work has taken place in your life, that salvation has been imparted. But holiness, growth, takes time in the Christian life. Look at Haggai chapter 2 and verse 19. He said, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree? It has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. Here's the people of Israel. Here they had uh, wandered away from obedience to the Lord. 
They had seen God's discipline upon their life. Two months had gone by since they had been obedient to the Lord. And Haggai reminds them, the barn is still empty. There are some consequences to your disobedience that you have to live with. And there's an awful lot of things that can take place in a person's pre-Christian life that's going to spill over after they're saved. You may have a view about raising your kids. You may have a, 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 an understanding and opinion about the relationship of a husband and a wife in a marriage relationship. You may have been taught some vehicle on how to deal with anger that could be so ungodly, so unscriptural, so displeasing to the Lord. And so holiness takes time. It is a process by which God works in our lives. I was not a Christian for the first 18 years of my life. And I saw the, the backwash, and I still do, of those first 18 years when I wasn't saved. But I am so encouraged with where God has brought me, but it reminds me that I am a dependent person. Romans 8.1 tells us that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But the same apostle who said that reminds us, reminds Christians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will reap. He's speaking to believers. That's not a verse that is addressed towards lost people, warning them about the dangers of going to hell. It's a verse written to God's people, reminding them that whatever they sow, that they will reap. And Haggai, by application, is reminding this people that holiness is a process, that it takes time, that it involves an obedient, submissive life. Turn to James in the New Testament. Hold your finger here, mark this passage, and go, if you will, to James chapter 4. I want you to see that this is clearly the teaching of the New Testament as well. James chapter 4. James, like Haggai, reminds the people that you cannot expect God to bless you unless you are living a life of obedience. If you disobey God, you're going to reap what you sow. doesn't matter whether you're saved or lost. It is a basic law of God. Just as there are certain physical laws that govern the physical universe, I can fall out of a tree, break my arm. It doesn't matter if I'm saved or unsaved. That law of God does not exclude Christians. And so there are certain spiritual laws that govern your relationship with God. Notice what he says, James 4. He's talking here in prayer, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteress. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, he's not talking about friendship with the, with the people of the world. Jesus ate with the tax gatherers and sinners. He's talking about friendship with the world system, with the world's values, that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Let's suppose... There's a young lady living here in Beaufort, and she meets a fine young man, and she marries him. And there at the marriage altar, they exchange their vows, and she says, I take thee, John, to be my lawfully wedded husband. And on and on, she says, I will keep myself for you alone as long as we both shall live, so help me God. But after she makes that commitment, six months later, she becomes infatuated with Fred, and they fall into an adulterous relationship, and John knows it. 
And she comes to John and says, John, I, I have some needs in my life. Would you please give me some money? Bill and I are going to Atlanta this weekend. And by the way, would you mind letting me have the keys to the car? And oh, the credit cards too. I could use those. Do you think John is going to give her what she requests? Absolutely not. He is not going to underwrite her sin if he has half a brain. That is God's point to us here in the book of James. He says, you ask, you say, God bless me. God work in my life. God do in and through me what you want to do. And we're holding on to this over here in the world. And God says, you ask, but you ask with wrong motives. Don't you understand that, that to be in love with this world is spiritual adultery in the sight of God? That God doesn't honor that. So Haggai reminds the people of the same truth in his day. They were living in plush houses. I mean, they had paneling in their houses. That was expensive in that day. They had the best, but where's the work of the Lord? It's in disrepair. The temple laying there for 14 years, untouched, nothing happening in God's work. Notice what James says here in verse 6. But he, God, gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God honors humility. God honors a broken life. And the problem with the people in Haggai's days, they had become proud. Their priorities were all out of whack. They were no longer the humble people of God. But God promises that if you want to become holy experientially, He tells through James the same things He said through Haggai. Obey God. Humble yourselves in the sight of God because God gives grace not to the proud and the boastful, not to the arrogant and disobedient, but to the humble. Not long ago, I had a man who came to me and he said, Pastor, would you pray for me? I said, of course I will. What do you want me to pray for? He said, I have this tremendous problem with sexual lust. He said, I'd like you to pray for me with, about it. And I said, I am delighted to pray with you about that. He said, well, I was kind of embarrassed to come and tell you about it. He said, you know, it just I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to fall back into that sin. I said, that is so encouraging. That is so encouraging that you would come because you're afraid that you're going to fall back into that sin. Because I find the people who are running scared are the people who are going to keep the fathers away from the sin. It's the arrogant. It's the boastful. It's the person who said, that would never happen to me that is going to get blindsided by the devil. Paul says, we know the verse, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond with that which you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. But don't miss the verse before there. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand be careful lest he fall. When you or I get to the point in our life where we think, man, I I've progressed spiritually. God is doing something in me. Man, I'm, I'm becoming a spiritual person. And we think we're above some kind of sin. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. God gives a greater grace. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. There are some Christians who will experience greater grace. We're not talking about saving grace. 
For if you've been saved, you've had the same experience I've had with Jesus Christ. We're talking about greater grace. We're talking about that grace that moves you down the road to holiness. Notice how he, what he says in James 4 and verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Same truth. And sandwiched between verses 6 and 10, He describes what a humble, holy person looks like. Notice, number one, He tells us to submit to God in verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Obey God. Do whatever He tells you to do. Notice what He says in verse uh, 7. Number two, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Have you ever thought about the devil fleeing from you? You know, for most of us, it's ridiculous to think of Satan running from us. We think the best we can do is just to stay him off for a little bit. But he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Notice he says, draw near to God, verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Guaranteed. If God doesn't seem as close to you as he once did, guess who moved? You must take the initiative. You must humble yourself before a holy, righteous God in prayer, in obedience to His Word, by feeding on the Word of God, by fellowshipping with His people. As you draw near to God, God promises He will draw near to you. And then He says, verse four, uh, um, number 4, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is saying you can't live a holy life with dirty hands. You can't live a holy life with a divided heart. You can't come to God facing both ways saying, God bless me over here while you're holding on to this area of your life that you know is disobedience and displeasing to God. God is not going to do it. He's not going to underwrite our spiritual adultery because friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Now that's the message that Haggai wants us to see. Let's go back and look at it. Haggai chapter 3, or chapter 2 once again, the third sermon. It's the same truth. And so he reminds the people, you can be contaminated by unholy behavior, whether it's your own or whatever. You can be contaminated by it. That holiness is a process that takes time. We're going to see how he argues that. Look at verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people. And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and what they offer there, where there, there on the altar. Every work they offer there is unclean. Now he's looking back on their past behavior because he's going to contrast it with the day that they're in, December 24th, 520 B.C. But he's reminding these people, they were very religious. They were involved in the sacrificial system. They were offering the animals there weekly, which, of course, prefigured the death of Jesus Christ. But while they were obeying God in this area of their life, they were living in rebellion in this area of their life. And God says, in essence, what you've offered on the altar of God has been contaminated. It's unclean. We can come to church all we want. We can sing the hymns and praise the Lord. But listen. If there's an area of your life that you are willfully holding against God, it displeases Him. Our God is a holy God, and He seeks holy people to do His work. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program HAG3. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our study in the book of Haggai. Join us then as we search the scriptures.